go back and start with this. Yeah, I am really sorry to have you do that again, but That's okay. I think this will come out a better listening experience for sure. So if you could take me back once again to Dundee. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. That's fine. So, um, so I grew up in Dundee, and um, uh, uh, about thirteen or fourteen years of age, went up to my grandmother's house uh, in Huntley uh, in Aberdeenshire, Scotland, and it was her birthday. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was my grandmother, maybe my grandfather, I'm not sure. But anyway, a distant cousin came and played uh, pipes very briefly there. Uh, I'm sure played Happy Birthday in Scotland the Brave and maybe a jig or two or something. And uh, I said to my dad, oh, i got to play that. that. That is awesome. i got to do that. And uh, on the way back home, which is maybe an hour and a half, I asked my dad lots of questions about it. And my dad said that uh, he actually used to play pipes a fair bit and uh, I'd had to give up because of work. And and um, had you never known that? Yeah, I, I had no clue. That's, so the, that's pipe, the, the pipes had obviously been underneath the bed or in a closet or something. Yeah. I think he'd stopped for like 17, 18 years. And then, uh, so he said, I'll get a practice channel, I'll get my hands going and I'll get you a practice channel and uh, we'll start together. And he taught me the, the basics and got me running. And uh, from then I just kind of was mad keen and uh, I joined the 68th uh, Boys Brigade in Dundee and uh, they had a pipe band under Pipe Major Mar and uh, um, I enjoyed the band and loved the, the Boys Brigade and uh, I'm still in contact with quite a few guys uh, through Facebook uh, from the Boys Brigade uh, days then. Was, and a couple um... Mm-hmm. What, is the is a boys brigade something like what I would think of if I think of the Boy Scouts here in the U.S.? Yeah, 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 kind of, kind of loosely, yeah, gotcha. yeah, lo- loosely based, yeah. But it wasn't so, exclusively a pipe band. That was like just part of what they did. Correct. That gotcha. was not like one of the one of the clubs that you could kind of get involved with uh, in the in the band. So that that sixth uh, eighth um, boys brigade was uh, like two companies. Uh, I think it'd been two churches that had kind of amalgamated, and they were then the 6th and the 8th Boys Brigade together. Mm. Um, so we had a decent pipe band there, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, a couple of the guys went on and joined the uh, Royal Scots Dragoons from that band, mm. and uh, I obviously went on and kept playing, and um, had a great time there. Now, now you, you mentioned that it was a distant cousin that came and played for your grandmother's play, uh, for your grandmother's birthday, and then right. and then your dad mentioned that he had played. You just hadn't hadn't been aware of it because he had to drop it for for work. I, you know, as a as a very not well traveled American piper myself, what I'm used to is like, oh, if I run into another piper, it's a bit, it's about as likely as two mosquitoes crashing into each other in the Grand Canyon. You know, it's just. <laughs> not super common and so and so i have this like i'm not sure if it's accurate that i imagine that scotland's got to just be so full of pipers that you throw a rock you're going to knock somebody's bass drone over but was that that's not the case like if you had this distant cousin who played but you didn't know any, you didn't know anybody else in your immediate circle who who was playing no not at the time i mean yeah. uh not at the time at all i mean it was uh it, 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 the, the whole piping world is, you know, it's fairly big around the world, but really locally, we kind of kind of keep to ourselves and, you know. Sure, sure, we, yeah. We kind of keep in our own circles and always have kind of things. So gotcha. once you're in, you're in, there's a whole bunch of people. But uh, That's the truth, yeah. If you're on your 
if you're not inside it, I, I dare say it's not immediately evident everywhere, mm. you know. So, so you'd made it to your teenage years without really being, you know, albeit in Scotland, just not not super duper uh, exposed to a whole lot of piping. So that when you did encounter it with your distant cousin playing, it was like, oh, hey, I want to yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, the funny thing was back then, uh, I'm sure somebody will tell me I'm wrong in saying this, but my... Um, my uh, impression of, of it back then was uh, I was taken up, I think, at the the age of 13. And uh, some of the big teachers back then would have said, well, that's way too late. Sorry. Don't, <laughs> you, don't bother. the boat, huh? <laughs> right. So, uh, so, so, you know, obviously, I kind of went gangbusters at it and uh, worked as hard as possible as I could. Yeah. And then I was very, very lucky. Um, my dad was very patient with his headstrong teenager yeah <laughs> uh and uh i also got uh tuition uh i think it was once a week from pipe major ian duncan who at the time was uh the pipe major of the scott Rail of vale of athel who oh, were yeah. one of the, who were one of the best bands in the world at the time wait vale of athel right that's, and he that's was, the band gordon duncan played with yeah correct and he was teaching around all the schools uh, in Dundee at the time, so he would teach a couple of students here and then drive to another school and a couple of students and whatever. Oh, I see. And so I was lucky, lucky enough to get lessons from him, and uh, he really put me on the path to uh, getting everything correct and you know 100% and uh, opening my eyes to playing correctly and on the beat and phrasing and really getting it down right and uh, I took it to heart and really worked very hard and after a year or two with lessons with him eventually I was allowed to join the, the Vale of Athol. Oh, I didn't realize you'd played with them that's awesome. Right so I, I played uh, with Gordon Duncan and Ian Duncan in the Vale of Athol Man, for you, about you four were, or four and a half years. You were already a pretty big deal in my mind Adrian you're only <laughs> becoming a bigger deal as we speak here. Well, it was fun times back then. The, the piping was great. I mean, I was very, very fortunate in all the turns of my life, I must say. But the Vale was, I mean, I was lucky uh, to be with them at the time I was because they were a terrific band. And actually, the very first contest I played at was the European Championships at Glenrothes. Mm. And uh, I remember the night before, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but the <laughs> night before, we really did not sound good. And... Ian was not happy because yeah. the weeks leading up to that, we were sounding pretty damn good. And then it just didn't sound very good the night before. And then the next day at the European Championships, we sounded terrific. Played um, MSR, was links of fourth, Athol Comers, and I think the Smith of Chile Chassis. And uh, we beat Strathclyde Police uh, that day and we were the European champions. And uh, that was my first contest with the Vale, so that was quite the... The entry to grade one so did, for a young kid. And, and I mean, did Ian say anything afterward? Like, oh, I didn't think we were going to make it, but y'all pulled it together. Good job. Or, or was oh, no, no. I, I mean, on, on the day, obviously, Ian had a, a lot of help and great players in the band. And yeah. he had a lot of knowledge and he was very calm under pressure and knew not to do anything crazy. Yeah. A bit like baseball, you know, some man, some of the best managers are the ones that just know just to kind of not panic and just kind of keep their head and just kind of wait for things to turn around you he, know, so. he wasn't the kind who was going to come into the locker room and kick the kick the cooler no. of gatorade over and yell at you no. or anything <laughs> no, no 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 he was he was he, he was a very uh v very thoughtful and uh you know very uh 
a great leader of the band. And when you so. first, when you got started on the pipes, did your dad still have his old set? Were you playing on his old set? Uh, mm, so a, a great friend of my father was Bert Barron, who they'd met when they played uh, as students in the in the the uh, what do you call it the college kind of uh, OTC, which is like territorial army or kind of. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, kind of paid army kind of thing for students, kind of yeah. thing. And my dad was with Aberdeen, and I think Bert was with Sterling, or no, he was with St Andrews OTC at the time. Mm. And uh, Bert ended up being a very, very well-known uh, uh, collector of bagpipes and dealer of ba- uh, vintage bagpipes in Scotland, and he uh, was uh, uh, over in St Andrews. And my dad got me a set of lorry, old lorry bagpipes, oh, really? uh, nickel and ivory to play at the time. And my dad had a beautiful set of silver and ivory Hendersons from about 1900. From 1900, uh, wow. Yeah, some of them I got, they were quite a fantastic set of pipes. Yeah. And uh, eventually I played them, but early on I was playing a set of uh, lorry pipes. So uh, that's what we were both uh, kind of uh, getting up and running with, you know? Yeah. So how long were you playing with the Vale of Athol? Uh, about four and a half years. Mm. And then I was getting to the point, you know, when you're either going to college or you're de- de- deciding what your career path's going to be and whatever. Uh, and uh, I had gone to Jakarta, Indonesia, or Singapore. I think it was Jakarta with a quintet from the Vale of Athol for a quintet competition down there and when i was there i met a whole bunch of the victoria police mm, who had okay. come up for this contest and it was uh it was a, a lot a fun trip and uh i remember meeting them there and talking to them and being very impressed and uh they were a full-time band at the time and uh i uh eventually decided that's what i wanted to give a give a shot and give a go at and uh I eventually got accepted by pipe major Nat Russell, uh, who was in charge of the band. And I went down on the same plane as uh, Paul Turner, who had been uh, the lead drummer at the Vale of Athol, uh, I think the year before or so, and then he'd left the Vale uh, just a wee while before that. Mm. So we ended up both... uh, uh, going traveling down in july or the end of june and then we were back up for the world championships that that, that year like five or six weeks later yeah. to play with the band so what about what year was this um 91 i think 91 huh mm-hmm. yeah 91 i think did you ever go back to ever go back to jakarta um uh, with bagpipes or otherwise I've stopped off on the way back from Australia, going back to Australia a couple sure, of times, I think. Sense, yeah. I think I did go back another time with the Vale or with the, the Vic- no, I went back with the Victoria Police, I think, mm. um, a, a year or two later after that, I think. So, oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Crazy place there. When it rains, it's like super hot, and when it rains, it thumps. Oh, really? And you're you're getting knocked over by the, the, the rain droplets here. So the rain picks up more water on its way down. Huh? Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy place. So so then, so then uh, playing with Victoria Police as of 91, does that mean you're moving to Australia full-time or are you traveling yeah. back and forth? 
Yeah, no, I, I lived in uh, the uh, in the Melbourne area. Uh, so the the state is the state of Victoria, which is in the bottom right hand corner of Australia. And uh, so I was a, um, I, I guess you could say a musical bandsman for the Victoria Police. Mm. And uh, it was a full time pipe band, a full time brass band, and a full time rock band. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's um, how they were able to pull pull together so many amazing sort of uh, sort of like uh, um, so many amazing pieces that did included more than just pipes, huh? They had, uh, had right. everything there. Right, and we we also had uh, people in the band uh, like Murray Blair and Mark Saul and. Um, Brian Niven and uh, I think a couple of others that played other instruments like Were, guitar and other things. You know? you good friends with Murray Blair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murray, uh, we, uh, myself, Murray, Mark Saul, and Neil Lyons. When I moved down, we and Hank Dean Hall actually, we all shared the house at the time in, oh, in really? Melbourne. Yeah. Did he has he has he sent you any uh, you know hey since you're my buddy here's a here's a Blair here's a Blair chanter for you. No, 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 no. no, no, no. Those things are cool, man. I'm gonna get one of those someday. Oh yeah, so it's pretty cool with the uh, Lawrence and Tool all playing them. Yeah, uh, it kind of comes across really well. So it's pretty crazy, you know. So, so how, long, a, how long were you playing with Victoria Police? Were you there in '98 for Master Blasters? Uh, yes, I was. But oh. I, I'd actually had two stints with them because halfway through, I got uh, as a lot of people do move in Australia, I got homesick, sure, so I moved sure. back back home and I. Uh, for about a year, I was a uh, a policeman with the Strathclyde Police, so I went through the the whole training and became a policeman with this with the Strathclyde Police. And did did they have a pipe band too? Oh yeah, I mean Strathclyde Police is uh, the one of the most winning pipe bands in history. Well then, shame on me for not. Yeah, that's okay. So so it was uh, I I was lucky to play with them for for one season too while I was doing like normal shift stuff. Yeah, you get there uh, and you're like, well, I guess as long as I'm here, I guess I'll play with you. <laughs> no, so it was a, uh, it was quite eye-opening. But uh, unfortunately, I was unlucky at the time that the the government slashed the salary I think, by a third. Oh wow, which was ridiculous. Oh and, yeah, all at once. Crazy. That's terrible. And then it was just you just you just couldn't um, you couldn't pay all your bills and everything. Yeah, you can't it. keep an apartment when you. Yeah, so eventually. They they kind of stopped that, but it was it was a death knell for me. So I moved back to Australia, and I was very fortunate uh, that Nat took me back in the band. And uh, I think two seasons after that, we uh, we uh, did the Master Blasters, played the live concert. That was ninety eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did the CD that's that June, I think it was, uh, and then we played the World's uh, concert. Uh, three, two nights before the Worlds in Motherwell, mm. and then we played the Worlds and we won the Worlds, and uh, so that was a phenomenal season to be around with the band. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever play Hellbound Train with that band? Yeah, yeah. I used to be one of the four. I used to uh, sometimes play the um, the the initial piece of the Hellbound Train, and then the whole yeah. band joins in, kind of thing, you know. That's awesome. That that tune, as as I'm sure is the case for a lot of people, that tune uh, was. It is still very special to me, but as a teenager learning how to play, I mean that was the the holy grail. You know, that's that was the first thing uh, Zach and another buddy and I. The first time that we ever sort of took the initiative to be like, we're going to learn our own thing, something that the band isn't handing to us. You know, it, right. was, it was Hellbound Train. Like we've got to figure this one out. This one's amazing. Right. I mean, uh, that, that's one thing that the band was amazingly fortunate with. Uh, 
But I would say that the band was very fortunate in a lot of different ways. And uh, Pipe Major Nat Russell was was uh, uh, a smart enough man that he he knew he couldn't do everything, and he had a he got together a very good uh, team of people in all different ways. You know, so people with different strengths, uh, and so we had a very, we had a very good tuning team, which was mainly uh, Robert Crozier and uh, Ross Bates. Um, and then Alan Leggett and Dave McNamara tuning the drones. So Robert and Ross tuned the chanters, and they were very, very good at that. So we had a great sound because of them and their very systematic approach. Um, and we also had the latest technology of the Ross bags and Ross drone reads and all that new systems. And then with the music with Murray Blair and, and um, Mark Saul, uh, writing all this kind of new cutting edge music, it was just, you know, it was just a, a I guess, a perfect storm really, yeah. uh, because that was, uh, you know, the the music they came up with was just it was just flowing out, out of their veins, you know, it was just crazy what they were coming up with great stuff, you know, so. Yeah, and, and you know, I might be seeing this entirely through like sort of the lens of my own personal experience, but I feel like it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for me to say that like it seems to me like a lot of the amazing stuff that you see happening with uh, oh, like Lincoln Hilton stuff and uh, some of the stuff that like Ross Ainsley and some of these other folks are doing. I feel like, you know, I don't have any data to support this, but I feel like if it hadn't been for Victoria police, like would these ideas even be floating in the air for people to grab and then keep running with, you know, and, and come up with some of this, some of this more of this cool new stuff. Well, I think it all helps. I mean, I mean, back in that day, I mean, like uh, Murray and Mark and a lot of other players really, really loved everything that Gordon Duncan had done previously. Of course, yeah. So, or Gordon Walker. Gordon Walker at the time was coming up with some great arrangements of different things. And um, do, 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 do. I'm trying to think of, of some other players at the time. But there was, you know, there was different players coming out. And also, for instance, uh, I do remember that we, we loved the recording by... Uh, Toronto and District Pipe Band under Pipe Major John Elliott. Uh, uh, the, I, think the, the, I think it was called Reflections. And it was a great CD, which I'm not sure loads of people heard, but it was like very cutting edge. It had music by Perry Gote and some other people. Mm. And the stuff they had in, in, on that CD was great. And we loved that uh, music too. And then we also had like, um, you know, different, music we were listening to from all different, uh, I guess, Celtic folk bands and folk sure, rock sure. bands. And so, so they, it was, it was a very much a kind of mixing pot of different things, much like I think it kind of happened to the 78 Frasers when Bill Livingston and, and mm-hmm. that was all kind of coming about in the early days. So. Mm. That's very cool. And, and you say that it was while you were there in Australia that you first started learning some read making. Right. Uh, so I, I was taught by uh, Bill Travail uh, about reed making, and uh, he was very, very, uh, very smart man, and uh, he was made up all the, the tooling himself, and it was quite education. And uh, the big thing about reed making is, uh, but, uh, I remember a dear friend who was around there was called uh, Sandy Hain. Sandy Hain, who Scott, he was an old reed maker from Ohio, Ohio. And he said, and he said, oh, we made maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe 2,000 reads, you'll start, and just, just about, just kind of, and I get it, you know, <laughs> thinking, 
Uh, 2,000 reads on the agent. Uh, and uh, probably being nice to probably probably 400 uh, yeah. uh, a lot to get around to. So, so yeah. How long it took three or 4,000 reads made? Oh, uh, oh, I have no clue. Cause yeah. it, was, it, was, uh, it was some dry, some dry spells in between. I was going to... Uh, with the obviously the competing and playing oh, so, sure. some solos and so 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 yeah. So did he teach you chanter read making specifically, or did you as of that point also start looking into sort of delving into tinkering with uh, drone reads as well? Oh, he just taught me uh, reads. Yeah. So um, it was um, Sandy Hayne and his brother uh, Bob Hayne, who's uh, still alive in Scotland, and and he actually. Uh, makes a lot of drone reads, game drone reads, and patch chanter reads, and pipe chanter reads in Scotland. Mm. And he still makes some tooling in different machines in Scotland. Bob, uh, Bob Payne's his name, and he uh, maybe the the tooling for for doing it, and then taught me how to make the the cane drone reads, and, and then Sandy helped me a little bit too as well. So yeah, so it's was, it was mainly the the Hain brothers. Mm. Now, I, and I don't mean to hop around chronologically, but I'm curious with your read making, has there always been, have you always wanted to wrap them in blue string or is that? Um... Well, I mean, when I first started uh, doing it, I mean, everybody was making them in black. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I mean, it, 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 I'd helped a little bit in in sales of, of, of reads and bagpipes and all different things in the British shop for a short time. And uh, I realized that a lot of players really do not know what they're playing. <laughs> so they just see this <laughs> so true. black read. <laughs> Myself as so well. <laughs> I, right. So I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I better try and make it a bit more distinctive. Yeah. So that, you know, at the worst case, people can say, I like, I like the blue read. In saying that, I didn't know that Doogie Murray, who's a read maker in Scotland and pipe major of Fife Police, he at the exact, probably the exact same time was starting to make reads too. And he was making them in blue. Yeah. <laughs> so we both had no clue that we were both starting off with the color blue. So yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, it seems like now, as of like fairly recently, you're starting to see more and more reed makers that use a stamp on the blades or a different color string or something. But I feel like, at least in my personal experience, yours was the first time I ever saw a reed that wasn't your standard, you know, two chunks of wood and, and a wrap of black. Right. Well, actually, I mean, uh, I'll also say that I, I had seen something prior to that which you might not have seen much in the u.s was uh jeff ross who made the pipe bags and the drone reeds he used to make pipe chanter reeds but he gave up on that and concentrated on the bags and the drone reeds and his read at the time uh was in navy thread on the body and bright bright red on the at the bottom yeah, oh, that's cool. Uh, so it was quite a, a striking read yeah. to to look at. So I guess that probably gave me part of the idea. I think so too. You know. Mm. So from Victoria Police, uh, how how do you end up in the Midwest of the United States? Where 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 where'd you go after that? So we won the World Championships, and then the next uh, well that win well that uh, end of the year or so. It was immediately obvious that we weren't really going to be continuing as the band competing anymore. Um, uh, and so there was going to be a lot of changes in the, in the, in the band from then on. It was, didn't seem like there was going to be any competitions. And I was very competition orientated. Um, so 
I'd uh, had an offer from a friend of mine, Jake Watson, in the 78th Razors uh, to come across there and, you know, make reads together and all that stuff and play in the band. So I took him up in the offer and moved to Canada. Um, didn't quite work out. Uh, played with the 78 Frasers for a, a season, had a brilliant time. Um, ended up moving into the States and uh, um, uh, moved to the sh uh, Chicago area eventually. Uh, and started teaching pipes there, uh, and then eventually started to making uh, reeds on the side kind of thing, and mm. eventually transitioned over to reed making uh, full time. Maybe three years, two two three years ago, full time. Yeah. I think. So, uh, so I used to, used to do a lot of teaching of pipers, and then I eventually got away from that and moved into the reed making full time. When you got to Chicago, when you were teaching and all, was that uh, just entirely yourself? You, um, or were you? Did you find like a Celtic center where you could go and teach part time or something like that? No, I I, I taught a lot of uh, single students and then um, a, a couple of bands as well. So I would uh, uh, go to their band practices like uh, every two once every two weeks or so, and then teach a bunch of students at a, a couple of different venues. Um, for people that could make it during the daytime and then some people that could only make it in the evenings and mm -hmm. that. So, so just made it work, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but you're a good teacher. I know we've had you at least once. I'm thinking twice though. We've had you out to judge at Pace and, and you did a, yeah, a I think I've been at twice. Afterward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was in June or July, right? That's right. Yeah. And we did a workshop on Sunday after uh, at the high school. Right. 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 Yeah. That's uh, Diane's uh, high school, right? That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and they're always good workshops, so I don't doubt you, you did well teaching. Thank you. Are you doing any of that at present, or are you just 100% in the uh, reads? Uh, I mean, to be, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, in the last year or so with the pandemic, it's yeah, been right. uh, yeah. basically on lockdown, kind of staying at home and uh, um, not have, really having contact with people at all. Um, I don't really do the workshop stuff anymore. I mean, I, I dare say uh, I'll probably end up doing it again a little bit, you know. Uh, just depends what opportunities come your way, you know. Sure, sure. There's a lot more people out there teaching uh, full time nowadays, so it's mm -hmm. uh, it's um, I think there's an embarrassment and riches uh, for a lot of people to choose from for instructors nowadays. So, so uh, yeah. What about what about judging? At what point in your journey did you start judging for uh, for competitions? Um, well, I, I became a, a accredited judge in uh, Australia. Uh, Nat Russell, pipe major Nat Russell, was very uh, forthright and wanted to get a lot of people from our band at the time, the Victoria Police, to get accredited and become judges. Yeah, I, I, don't, um, I don't doubt you were qualified, but I was going to jokingly ask, like, was that an honorary title they just gave to all members of Victoria no. Police at the time no. just because the band was doing so well? No, 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 no. You had to, you had to do, like, um, RSPBA. Sure, um, yeah. Um, uh, certificates and uh, also the same their version of basically the same kind of uh, thing was done by the, the the Australian Pipe Band College mm -hmm. um, so I got my certificates uh, basically through that and then uh, moving to North America I, I could uh, uh, you know uh, join over here and uh, become a judge over here too Yeah, and I've done obviously certain 
you know, continuing education, another certification over here uh, since then. Mm -hmm. So you're, um, you've, you've, you've hopped over a few different continents here. Um, you've played your pipes in different places and you've lived different places. Are you, are you settled in Chicago or are you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going anywhere now. I you mean, it's, you haven't uh, got the itch, huh? No, no. I mean, it's, uh, it's all, I've, I've had a, um, a very, uh, great life and, uh, it's been great to visit and be in so many different places, uh. But I'm definitely ensconced where I am, so uh, uh, um, I, I, I like the Chicago area. It's very central and everything, and I like uh, North America. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back in a normal life, as everybody is. Oh, and, yeah, who isn't? Uh, I've uh, just, I actually had just joined up before the pandemic with the 78 Frasers again to play oh, with them you. again. Yeah. So I'm kind of looking forward to playing with the band and uh, um, seeing how we sound and play uh, hopefully next year, I'm guessing it'll be. Or maybe, you never know, maybe we get to play at some event or something late in this year or something. So yeah, we'll here's see. hoping. So yeah. Well, listen, I'm happy for you and, and I wish you all the peace, but if you ever decide that you just really want some desert air and you want to move to Utah, <laughs> I've got a pipe band that would accept you with open arms. So. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful place, Utah. I had a great time when I came out. Yeah, so we'll at least really get you out fun. a few more times to judge or something. The problem is it's so hot and dry. That's true. That's true. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. As a, as a guy who you know not only has played his pipes in a lot of different places, but also is making reeds, um, I think it was the second time you came out here to Utah. I asked you, I was playing one of your reads and I, and I, I walked up to you before you were going to listen to me solo. And I was like, Hey man, I don't, uh, I, I don't know if you noticed that I've got this blue reed here in my chanter, you know, as if it was <laughs> going to give me an extra point, you know, but I did ask you, I, I asked you, I said, you know, this was a, this was a, I don't remember if it was an easy medium or a medium read. And I said, you know, it does, it plays kind of hard. And I asked you about that and you said it was the elevation. To, to what degree do, is there any like hard and fast rule that you know about that like affects the way a chanter reed is going to behave when you go up in elevation or when the air gets real dry, you know, versus sea level versus humidity? I mean, uh, I, I I would say the, 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 the two main things that really affect pipe chanter reeds are elevation and, and a dry climate. Uh, Which we've got then, in extremes over here in Utah. <laughs> correct. So, uh, so it's quite challenging and, I've got to say hats off to everybody who uh, do what they do. And when I was out in Utah, I was really quite impressed by a lot of people, how their bagpipes sounded so good in a climate like that where the humidity is so, what is it, like 12% outside or something? Oh, on a, that's a very humid day, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> they look at lower. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like cra crazy, crazy You get, you get 12% and, and people go inside. They say, oh, I can't stand this. I'm going into the AC. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so anyway, it, it, it was quite impressive how people had adapted and were, you know, making the best of it and all that stuff. And since then, I've realized, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things with uh, pipe chanters and reeds bagpipes that for like for instance um i'm involved in a um making some reads that are going to get launched soon uh for a chanter for uh, roddy mcclellan yeah. and uh he's behind that called the elevation chanter yes. and and yeah. joe brady is also one of the other masterminds and uh, people behind that uh enterprise and it's a i think it's a very good chanter very great idea which is 
develop a chanter for the US market, US climates and all that stuff so that it's going to be lower pitched so that for your drier climates and hotter climates that when you play there you can play and not you know be super super off the 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 pitch scale because of the your pitch climbing with the dry and and the heat oh yeah man um, some, sometimes our high g hole is a whole second hole you have to carve it out so much after, after right so so this new chanter is going to be lower pitched and uh, the whole what we're trying to do is to have it uh i i'm pairing my read with it uh uh to try and give uh, Roddy the best I, I can for my read um, to match with this chanter so there's no tape on the chanter basically as a mm. good starting point, especially the top hand. Mm. Um, so that way, once you know you can set it uh, to a decent pitch where it's not too crazy high, but then the sun will, and the dryness will take you up to where you basically want to be kind of thing, you know. So you can kind of uh, uh, figure out when it's hot and, and dry roughly where you want to set the chanter so you get the sound that's still robust and thick and uh, giving you a good uh, thick sound you can actually hear the top hand <laughs> right right and and if you think about it i mean when any band goes from north america to scotland i mean say you're playing at four i don't know 485 hertz over here yeah. as a band which is a, a nice bright pitch if you leave your reeds in as they are and you go to Scotland and pick them up and start playing, it's way damper over there uh, and and a lot cooler. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're not playing at four eighty five, you're playing at four seventy eight or something. Yeah, just right in the uh, box. You just already oh, done just that. complete com- completely flat. So when they develop chanters for that market, they have to kind of push the pitch up a bit because they want to get a brighter sound when it's cooler and damper and, you know, quite often the weather isn't, you know, brilliantly warm over there. So that's a certain kind of (laughs) climate they're making. Right. (laughs) That's it. Right. That's a certain climate they're they're making the chanters for. But then we take the chanters over here and we have nothing like that. So yeah, that same chanter. Now we pick that up over here and now we're up at like 490. (laughs) Yeah. We are trying to coax it down in pitch. So, so anyway, the, the main thing about this uh, elevation chanter from Roddy McClellan and uh, I'm going to launch soon this read called the Elevation Read, is that hopefully we can pair something that gives uh, uh, a lot of bands over here um, an easier chanter setup that will work for them over here in the warmer and drier climates and hopefully some of the higher climates as well. So yeah. uh, that's kind of the idea behind that, you know. So it's kind of been fun trying to figure that out and... Uh, Obviously, I'm still trying to learn more and more about the higher elevation, and uh, uh, I've still got some ideas about what to try to to tweak reads more and more to try and get that even better and better. So mm. it's uh, all in uh, uh, my head right now, and all, all the little bits I'm going to keep on trying to get better and better for the elevation stuff, you know. So, well, I'm nothing but excited for it. I mean, from from the time I first heard about this elevation chanter, I was like, well. I have money. Give me one of those chanters. Like I am <laughs> so ready for this man. And to hear that your parent are read specifically to it. I can't wait. That's right. awesome. I mean, uh, I've had the experience of buying a B flat chanter and plugging right. it in and playing and being like, Whoa, this plays so well. Like I can hear the top hand and it plays really in tune and stuff. And, and then I heard about the elevation chanter and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like, 
yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like it's positioning the holes, it's setting everything set up kind of in between what my standard like I don't know Warnock chanter is and this B flat chanter I have. It's like somewhere in the middle, and that's the right. reason the B flat chanter was working well for me is because it's supposed to pitch down. And right, and, and so this would be say, I mean, I've had it being roughly four seventy two to about four eighty. Yeah, uh, depending on where you want to kind of set it up, kind of thing. Uh, and obviously your your climate and or, and temperatures and all that stuff yeah. of where you are. Uh, so I mean it is quite adaptable. And I dare say the heat of summer you add a uh, a bit of heat and a bit of more dryness in the middle of summer. I dare say, you know, if you're setting up at four seventy eight, you might end up being about four eighty one, four eighty two, mm-hmm. and you can probably be flatter than that if you want to be. And uh, so I think it's uh, going to work out well for uh, a lot of players, a lot of bands, and yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about the, you know, hearing the results of, of a lot of bands getting to getting to try these out when they get launched. Yeah, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I saw I saw that they were listed on your on your website as well as coming soon. Those chanters. So, right, right. That is exciting. Um, on that note, I I did ask I asked a few people, um, some folks who listen to the podcast if they had any questions they wanted me to put to you. And mm-hmm. one of them that came up was uh, folks were just curious if you have a favorite chanter that you like hearing your own reads in. It's it's funny you say that. I mean, it's like um, it's like uh, like if somebody said to me, "Well, what's your favorite food?" It's funny. I don't have a favorite food. I have a a bunch of different foods I like a lot. Say a certain dish from Indian food, food, and one dish from Italian, and all that kind of uh, sure. stuff. So for me, I mean, I, I really like the. The Shepherd Chanter, I really like this new Elevation Chanter. Um, the Infinity Chanter is very good. The mm, McCallum Kale Chanter is very good too. Yeah, but they're all a little bit slightly different. They're all slightly different pitches and slightly different um, uh, tones to their sound. And uh, I must admit, I, I think they're all very good. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've also got an old nail I play. With a silver saw on it from oh must be twenty years old now and it's been doctored by a a, a carving knife by myself right. a lot a lot well, in the past got after it. so it's it's definitely hard pitch than it used to be yeah. and uh, so yeah I mean there's uh, I wouldn't say there's any singular make of chanter there's really yeah. quite a few and for me I have to try and make my reads function well and a whole bunch of chanters so that's been my of course primary uh function is to try and make sure they do work well for people and all different chanters yeah when so you yeah were, when you're kind of setting your shop up did you did you have a collection of different chanters and just kind of pop your own read into each one and just kind of see how's it doing in this one how's it do you know how's it doing a Warnock, right. how's it doing a gibson that kind of thing right you have to do that because you have to try and um you have to try and find the flaw early on you have to try and fi- find the flaws in what you're making yeah. And why is it a flaw, and what's causing it, and you know, and so, so yeah. Early on, I mean, now I've got um, a drawer here, and I'm, I must have I don't know, fifty, fifty-five, sixty chanters in there. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, wow. you know, and uh, and and an amazing amount of them are are really good chanters, and yeah. there's a lot of very smart people out there nowadays that are producing very good products. Yeah. 
Well, and of course, I don't doubt it at all that you're genuine. And I, you know, I agree with you as far as my experience can go. Of course, I, I probably have kind of put you in an impossible position to say, like, pick a chanter. Of course, you want your read. <laughs> of course, your reads work in all the chanters. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to tell anybody. Well, don't try it's not, an, not an easy thing to do, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, there's another chanter, actually, now I think about it, that it is doing really well for a lot of solo players over here and, and some bands. This is the Bruce Gandy uh, uh, chanter from McCallum. Mm. Well, anything uh, with Bruce Gandy's name on it ought to be doing well, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> he, uh, he, yeah, he, know, he knows what he's doing too. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, so kind of to the point of, you know, having to kind of try stuff out and see where the problems are, one other question that, that, uh, that came in was, um, how many reads end up in the trash heap before you find one that's good to, you know, push to market? Like, do you go, like, are there 10 trash reads before you finally get the good one? Well, so... I would say early early on in my read making days there was a lot of trash obviously as as in any read maker sure. uh, getting going but I've gradually over time replaced all the jigs or setups or machinery on all the different processes for the read making and I'm always pushing for getting better and better uh, overall consistency and quality of finish on every process. Um, and I would say the last two years or so, I've really kind of stepped up with um, improving the processes. And I would say if I make 100 reads right now, I would say I probably trash about maybe five or six. Oh, that's, which that's I think, a great ratio. I think that's really pretty, pretty darn good. Yeah. I mean, like any read maker, once you split the cane tubes, um, you kind of have an idea of it's a good piece of cane or you don't when you cut it into different mm. pieces. And uh, so like any reed maker, as you go through the, the, the early stages, you know, you, you take a whole bunch and kind of chuck it in a box and you've got this pile, this box full of all this uh, cane that you don't want to use. So I'm trying to be very selective as I go through all the processes and uh, before I actually finish off a reed blade, uh, or two reed blades uh, uh, that hopefully have rejected all the bad pieces of the cane mm. before I get to that stage. So, so yeah, it's, it's it really is pretty systematic now. Where I'm, I'm pretty happy that uh, the, the returns are really, really quite high of how many good reads I'm getting. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Do you do you by chance do any fly fishing? No, I just... I, 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 did, I did as a young kid. Yeah, as a young kid, I went a couple of times uh, fly fishing. Uh, Never quite got the knack of it. Uh, I just that's... suspect that you probably have all the equipment you need to tie some of the most amazing flies that you know, <laughs> anyone would ever have. I've, I've, I've seen people do it, and it's, uh, yeah, I, I, you can definitely see the similarity, that's for sure. And yeah. uh, it's pretty fiddly business, that. Yeah. Now, as a reed maker, do you think that you personally get a little more triggered than most people would when you see someone doing something stupid with a reed? Ah. Uh... Yes and no. I mean, uh, spend some time kind of cringing when you go to a Scottish festival, like, oh no, don't, don't I mean, pinch it, don't pinch it. Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I do remember. I don't remember who told me this earlier on, but I've had, I've heard this later on. Um, I think it was attributed to Jack Lee. I didn't hear it from Jack initially, but somebody attributed this to Jack Lee, saying, that if you want to learn how to be good dealing with reeds, he basically said, look, you got, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. You're going to buy a whole bunch of reeds and you're going to trash some of them, just trying things out with them. Mm. And as you work through that, try and keep a knowledge of what's going on, what's happening and 
what went wrong or what went right, why. And the more you kind of work with reeds instead of just staring at them and thinking you can't touch them, then the more you kind of will figure out what you can do with reeds or what you can't. And yeah. you'll become very uh, sufficient to look after reeds and set them up far, far better yourself. And I think that's a great thing. And I did early on take a lot of reeds and try different things. I said, oh, that doesn't work. Mm. That kind of made it super flat or it made it double tone on F or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think you have to at some point take reeds and just kind of, you know, cut the top off them with a razor or, yeah. you know, scrape them in certain places or try different things. Maybe and, not on uh, competition day, of course. But... No, 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 no. <laughs> that's for sure. And definitely not your good reed. But over so, the weekend, go at it with a with a Dremel or with a uh, with a, a hey. what do you call the stick you poke up inside of it with a mandrel. oh mandrel yeah mandrel yeah yeah go at it with a mandrel or a yeah shape, I shape mean, it down one side and then the other. But I mean, if you look at some of the best players out there, I mean, uh, for a lot of players, a lot of players will take a read that isn't necessarily playing really easily and really uh, perfectly straight away. Because they know they, that the reed is going to loosen off once you play it in for a while. So it's going to get looser and it's going to be, you know, not necessarily as good at staying in tune, uh, etc. So a lot of top players will get a reed that isn't quite as loose as a, what a lot of people would think would be a perfect reed. Or they'll kind of want to take a little bit of cane off in certain spots on a reed that's a, maybe a stronger reed. Mm. And then that becomes an absolute just singing singing read you know just because mm. they they kind of know what to do with it you know so is, is that kind of read magic behind I, ha I had one person ask me about the roddy mcleod high a sound if there's a way to achieve that like how does roddy mcleod do that with his high a it, so it, i i've 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 meant to have this conversation with roddy many times oh, and, really? <laughs> uh, when i've seen him over in scotland it's like because his bagpipe is definitely uh in my top three pipe sounds and maybe top two pipe sounds that I've always loved and just thought was an an amazing amazing uh, bagpipe yeah I mean so and, like because like, he's got skill to play it but even beyond that his instrument sounds amazing right and it's funny and I could be wrong but I do remember Roddy leading Scottish Power uh, I mean Power of Scotland I think they were called at the time and they did something where they caught off all the their drones just to play pipe charters as a group. And I remember, I think Roddy kind of played like an excerpt to one of the tunes saying, okay, we're going to play this or like this. And his high A was completely clear. And I was like, yeah. what? That's not, what, what's going on? Yeah. And so I listened to him a couple more minutes and then they stopped and he took the corks out or whatever, tuned his drones up. And as soon as he put his bass drone on, you know, all of a sudden, the Roddy McLeod famous high A uh, is there. Huh. And it's funny if you, I've had this as well. I used to play the Ross system. There was one time I actually accidentally got the, the tubes kind of uh, mixed, uh, kind of twisted slightly. And the base, the base drone tube was, was uh, kind of twisted with the chanter tube. Yeah. And all of a sudden I had this very harsh kind of, you know, rhythmic kind of high A. And I realized it's more to do with the bag vibrating with the, the frequency of the bass drone. Huh. So I, I think it's more to, and I could be wrong, I'm not, 
I don't know enough about this, but I think it's more to do how the bass drone um, vibrates the bag. And I think the thicker bag you have being a sheepskin, the more prone it is to passing the vibration onto the chanter. Interesting. Um, I never would have even thought to go that far. Like Right. Huh. And I, 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 there's been times where uh, since then I've had like a really great, vibrant, high, a bit like Roddy, but not as good as Roddy's, but like it. And I remember putting my bass drawn off and it wouldn't be there. Not, nothing like it. Yeah. So I think it has something to do with that. So that's uh, as best as I can venture my thoughts on that. But hey, if you can ever uh, interview Roddy, maybe uh, that's question number one. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That is question number one. <laughs> so, you know, tell, tell me if this is, rings true for you, but I had a friend the other day who was asking me about bagpipes. He's saying, you know, like maybe he wanted to learn and stuff. And, uh, and I happen to know that this friend, uh, since he was a teenager, has been really enthusiastic about uh, rebuilding and racing diesel trucks. Uh-huh. And uh, what he loves about it, you know, is that you get under the hood and the tiniest little tweak here, the tiniest little adjustment there, you know, can make a difference on the track. And I told him that's how bagpipes are. You can't plan to reach a destination. There isn't one. You got to love this process of like, oh, what happens, you know, with my reeds here, or what happens when I retie my bag this other way. These, oh yeah. These little things. It's this. It's a lifelong thing. Like nobody ever arrives. We're all journeying. Well, I mean, exactly. And I think, uh, uh, I think one other question that loads of people ask is, well, okay, if I'm going to free up your reeds or do something to your reeds, what do I do? Mm, and yeah. uh, now after making reads for a long time i would have to say i think what makes it not uh, something that you can just say you do this to everybody's reads mm. is everybody's tooling setup or machining setup for the reads is different from everybody else so you might find that a certain tool and setup leaves maybe a half a thousandth thicker on the outer edges of the blades as compared to the middle of the sound block sound box or maybe the reverse is true uh, with, with a different maker so mm. tiny tiny differences of just how the, their machining finishes their blades and stuff of like this is maybe where you just have to tiny scrape here and there and, and all of a sudden you know really makes it great yeah. But I have a machine and set that's maybe different from the other maker. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's the, the reverse is true. Maybe you've got to, uh, I mean, usually with my reeds, if they're a bit firmer or a bit tighter, I tend to give them a little bit of a scrape on, so the above the blue thread on the main reed is uh, the sound box. Yeah. And then the next bit above that I call the ramp. It's like a downhill s- yeah. section. Then the top bit is what I call like the tips or the, the tongue section. Yeah. Um, and I tend to just lightly uh, scrape or sand uh, on the left and right hand sides of the ramp section. Mm, not straight. Just a little. Just no, I leave the middle alone unless it's unless the reed is very very tight on the top hand. Uh, I tend to kind of just uh, give a little bit just out to the to the sides. And that tends to kind of just let the reed really vibrate, but it doesn't take much. Mm. And that's why it's such a crazy business for reed makers is the tolerances are very, very minute Yeah. uh, between a reed that's really vibrating well and one that's just a wee bit tight, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you and then you add into all of that as well the your ship and your reads all over the world, and so who knows how right they, how they're yeah now, yeah 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 now you're pl- you've got to get something that works uh, hopefully well in a damp environment and hopefully decent in a, in a dry environment. Yeah. So it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah, you know when I was a teenager uh, playing in the first pipe band I played with, um, I w- I was told that if my reed was dying, you know, if a reed was on the way out, mm-hmm. I could wrap it in a moist paper towel stick it in the fridge overnight and it would give me another two weeks or something like that. And I, I, I know of no scientific explanation for what's happening there. Is that a real no, thing? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I can imagine back in the day because, um, uh, I mean, nowadays you have all, all these different um, chanter caps and reed boxes that yeah, are, yeah. Uh, you know, keep the moisture in there. Right. And when you tie a reed on, the two, uh, the two blades or pieces of cane that you tie together around a tube you have to, if you did it dry, they would split. Mm. So you have to uh, wet the cane so that it will allow itself to be bent uh, and uh, curved around the cane. Um, And then it dries out and it forms that shape. But if you let that reed really dry out a fair bit, then a lot of reeds, the sides will open up and leak a little bit. And Mm. then because the reed is uh, on, um, uh, I don't know how to describe this, but the wrapping is going around the reed, yeah, you know, yeah. circular. So the force is kind of circular. Ah, uh, sure, yeah. So if you are then to shrink those reed blades by really drying them out, then quite often reed blades will move uh, uh, aside from each other. So they kind of move sideways, mm. and that's because they've shrunk. So now with the force that's going sideways or around being the thread, it pulls the reeds ap- the, the blades apart because the, the pieces of cane have shrunk and they're still oh, under pressure. Oh, yeah, yeah, so then it's opening up. And then you wet that, if you don't move it back into place, it probably won't ever be the same reed again because it mm. won't kind of fall, it won't sit, sit back and the two blades right on perfectly in alignment again. So there's a lot to be said for always trying to keep your reeds a little bit of moisture just to make sure the cane doesn't dry out uh, or want to change shape because of that, you know. So, so yeah, I, I dare say a little bit of moisture in those days would, especially where you are as drier, would have would make a big difference, you know. You're stressing me out, Adrian, because at at the end of last year, I'd made a little bit of money off funerals and stuff like that, and uh, so you know, around I figured for taxes, you know, I was gonna buy all the supplies I would need for the next year while I had made some money, you know, uh, trying to keep sort of my bagpipe habit paying for itself, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I bought like a dozen reeds maybe more uh mm-hmm. most of which were melvin reeds i do like your reeds um okay. and i just have them in a box right now i gotta get a humidifier ah. in there i'm now i've got like a i've got like got 200 dollars worth of reeds that are just gonna dry out on me <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean it just i mean if you have them in a, a little ziploc bag i mean that kind of helps a lot too because they're not really gonna be open to the environment but yeah. um but I mean, it's worth doing it as an experiment sometimes, is just to leave a, a, a read out, uh, and you just kind of blow through it, and you'll hear like a kind of um, a kind of buzzy, and then it goes yeah. beep, you know, yeah. at the end. And then if you leave it for about three hours, just out, say on the tabletop, and don't do anything, come back to it, it mm. will be it will be functioning way differently, and way tighter, and uh, won't work as well. A little bit of moisture back to it, you know, gently coaxing it back, not flooding it. Uh, we'll get it back uh, to playing again, you know. Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah, and, so, and is that sort of your recommendation? Your first, like the first thing a person should try if they've got a dying read. That's another question that came in. Like, how do I save my my dying read? Well, so for instance, um, I like um, I, I, if it was a dying read. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do. Uh, there's um, you can obviously add a little bit of moisture, just very say get like a uh, paper kitchen towel and just kind of lightly damp it and put the reed in there and cover up both sides and leave it in there for about five minutes and then take it out of there, let it kind of, you know, sit and uh, dry off a little bit because um, the cane's very porous, so it'll pull in the moisture very quickly. Mm. Um, so that'll help it a little bit, rehydrate a little bit. Uh, also, a, um, uh, a reed mandrel, uh, which opens up the inside uh, of the staple or the tube that's inside of it uh, is very handy. I personally um, prefer the reed mandrels that you push and the ones that you don't twist. Hmm. I don't, it's just, just me, but I don't like the ones that twist. I think they kind of go zero to a hundred too much. Whereas the ones that you just push through, like you can get, you can get one from Tartantown. I think that one is excellent because you can just push and it's changing the eye formation, all of it basically at the same time, just in very small increments as as you push farther in. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, the other, it's got that kind of longer taper to it. Yeah, it's got that shape as well yeah. to it. So you're just pushing it in. Whereas the ones you turn, they kind of twist for a little bit and then they kind of all of a sudden just give and flop or right yeah. around in a circle and you know it's. Now and it's really then, open. Then really suddenly open. You've, you've pushed it the width of that, that mandrel instead of the... Right. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, yeah, I'm not... A, um, I mean, obviously, people have, di- people have different ideas and it works different ways for different people, but that's just kind of how I think of that. Yeah. And then also, I mean, there's one... A couple of things there. And this is one I've never... Uh, this is one I heard from guys that used to be on the Python school, Army Python school at Edinburgh. And uh, they said if you take a tiny, tiny bit just off the, the, the top corners of your reeds, uh, just a tiny little kind of diagonal bit off the top corner of a reed that's yeah. weak, it will just kind of tighten up a little bit and make it just a little bit more playable for a couple of weeks or so, you know? That's funny because I take a tiny bit off the top corners of my reeds by accident all the time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes. yes. No, no wonder it's so hard to play my pipes. <laughs> right. Now, now, I don't think that the Surefire Synthetic Reed Mafia is going to put a hit out on you no matter what you say, but I'm curious what you think of synthetic reeds and also alternative reed materials. Like, is there some other material that would do well instead of cane, but it's very expensive or very unwieldy? Or is there a future for synthetic reeds? Or is this just something that's going to always be on the side? I, I, I mean, I'm sure that eventually somebody will devise something that's kind of decent in, in the synthetic reed uh, market. I really haven't heard anything I think is 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 worth it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, knowing what I know from reed making, I think if you get any different material, the biggest thing uh, you're going to notice about it is it won't look anything like the reeds we make. Mm, yeah. because the propensities of the material will, will be vastly different. So that material might be stronger or something to get you a certain pitch and sound, but then it might be half the, the thickness of the of, of what a cane reed is. 
mm-hmm. or maybe double the thickness or maybe a lot wider or you know what i mean oh yeah i know so, the, the one i have one synthetic reed and it it looks like a super it looks like a baby practice chanter reed like it's very right. different in dimensions you're right so i think the only way that i'll ever really kind of work out will be somebody's a piper who has some reed making skills but also uh through their normal day job has uh access to different materials and you know being able to try all different materials uh with work tools that they have and uh, be able to uh, try all that stuff out yeah. because i don't think a reed maker would uh none of us would have the money to be able to throw into it because it would it would cost so much money trialing all different uh, materials and all different ways and take a lot of time and but i think you need a government event, grant for that kind of research right yeah exactly exactly get some somebody uh a college to do it as a as a, as a yeah uh, a four year project or something. Right. But, uh, um, yeah, so I I, I think it'll be a long time because uh, cane is not the easiest material for for us to make reeds from. Yeah, uh, but it gives us the best uh, the best uh, color of sound, you know, mm. or, or tone uh, and volume and everything. So uh, it not being the ideal. Uh, material to use it gives us the best uh, sound properties that we're looking for and when when you're looking at like you're like the advice that you could share about like how to shave a reed you know um and and also mandrilling a reed is it different for ridge cut reeds versus molded reeds or is it all pretty much the same animal no um so if you have a molded reed a molded reed uh, has a, a lot more shallower kind of scoop going up the whole reed and a lot lo- a lot smaller, uh, not as tall uh, a sound box. Um, and so those ones, it's a very gradual change to the tips. And usually the tips of those reeds are a bit thicker than they will be if they're going to be for a ridge cut reed. Gotcha. Um, so there's different propensities to it. So um a lot of uh molded reeds you kind of um scrape or sand or whatever overall the whole reed mm. uh more um whereas uh i think more ridge cuts you're you're more working on the top half of the reed gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but in saying that i mean there's different ways to do different things I no mean, again we should experiment right yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's like sfu simon fraser university um themselves and some other bands have quite often taken a little bit of the thickness off the sound box only mm. and they've had a, great, a lot of great success with that yeah. you know so it just depends how you want to work your reeds you know so i mean what you can do is you can you can thin down uh, the sound box of a heavy reed and maybe put a dental bridle on on the reed which kind of keeps the mouth a bit more oh, closed sure yeah yeah makes it a bit easier to play and you can have a very vibrant reed that way too mm. So there's a lot uh, there's a lot to be done with reeds after you get them. Uh, it's not just uh, me making a, a good read. It's uh, what you do with the read afterwards to get the, the best out of the read uh, uh, can make a big difference too. Yeah. Well, and maybe um, you've been very generous with your time, Adrian. I appreciate that. Maybe we oh. could, maybe we kind of can can fade out on something like that. But before before I ask you this question, I I where should we direct people to see your work and to get your reads? Is it just melvinreads.com or are there other places they should also be looking around? Well, I mean, melvinreads.com is obviously my website and uh, I uh, have my reads uh, available in, in a lot of different shops around the world. 
Uh, I mean, I would say in North America, it's uh, uh, Henderson Imports, uh, Bar One, um, Piper's Hut. I'm mm -hmm. trying to think off the top of my head here. Um, in Scotland, it's uh, R.G. Hardy, McCallum Bagpipes. Uh, where else am I missing out here? Piper's Cave in New Jersey, I think it is, there, mm -hmm. on the East Coast. Uh, obviously, uh, McClellan Bagpipes uh, uh, will have my reads with the Elevation. Uh, Chanter will be I can't, uh, I can't working that, that one. Man. I'm excited about uh, that. Um, yeah, so if people are interested in the Elevation Chanters uh, and my reads, uh, just uh, if they can contact me once it launches, uh, uh, that would be great. Or Roddy McClellan uh, and... I can help them out from there. Yeah, expect there's, an there's, email from me right away, man. <laughs> thanks, man. But there's, there's, there's quite a few shops. Uh, I oh, mean, Lone Star Paper. Town. I just yep. looked up. Looked yep. The, yep, you're on there. Right, and uh, so there's a lot of good shops around the world that are, uh, stock the reads. So uh, sorry if I've forgotten anybody. It's just off the top of my head. Yeah, sure. No pressure. I'm sure it's understood. Well, then maybe we can – a uh, beautiful fade-out would be if I just ask you, Adrian, a person buys one of your reads. The package arrives, they open up the package. What should they do with it? I would say uh, get um, some, paper, some um, uh, paper kitchen towel and just, uh, you know, like a spritzer bottle, you know, like a uh -huh, little sure. wee misting thing. Yeah. Just a little bit of water in there and just kind of lightly mist the uh, paper. And I would just kind of uh, put the reeds on there, uh, put the top uh, piece of the kitchen towel over the top as well, just for a couple of minutes, and then uh, just let them sit for a couple of minutes. And then um, uh, then after that, once they've sat for a couple of minutes with it back open again, then you could uh, start giving them a wee test uh, in the chanter. And don't be afraid just to give them a little bit of a flex because no matter what I do or any reed maker does, once it leaves here, you got to remember the reeds under pressure because it's around the tube. Yeah. And some every piece of cane is different. So some pieces of cane will will be great reeds and they'll stay exactly as the mouth opening was made and wants to be. And then some pieces of cane aren't a bad piece of cane. They may be just a bit more rigid and really have a great sound to them. But when they haven't been played or manipulated yet, they might open up a little bit mm. and have a wider mouth. And so don't be afraid just to give it a couple of squeezes and just see if the mouth kind of starts to kind of close up and kind of, you know, if you if you start looking at all the mouths of all the reeds, you'll kind of get an idea of how it looks when it looks like a good reed, you know, mm -hmm. how how the width should be. And quite often if you get the width uh, just right, you'll be a cut, you know, and the inside would be, a, I don't know, I have to measure it, but it'd be like a millimetre or two um, open then uh, the scale and everything else will, will play quite well for that read. Mm. But if the mouth is too open, it's it's going to be out of balance. It's, it's, it's going to be rough and it's going to be hard to blow. Yeah, Whereas a couple of squeezes, it'll probably kind of come back to what it should be. And I would just say, don't be afraid just to coax the read gently over a couple of days. And um, I would say, as I was always taught, don't expect the read to sound absolutely wonderful 100% uh, on the first day. Because if it does, it probably won't last and it's going to loosen off and it's going to get worse. Whereas uh, if you pick a reed, it's just a wee tweak stronger than you like and keep on giving it a little bit of squeeze in and a little bit of playing in and loosening it off. 
uh, it'll probably end up uh, becoming just perfect for you. Yeah. So uh, no, no matter what you do, you're always going to have to try and coax the read over a bunch of days to become exactly what you want it to be. And then also the last thing is about one or two days after you start playing a, re- a new read and you got it in the pipes, be prepared that you know you might pick it up the ne- the next day and a bit of the moisture's got to the read and it might be a little bit flatter that day. And again, just kind of play it, you know, and uh, don't panic. And uh, it's just some of the moisture getting more in, inside the cane. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can just kind of keep playing it and reset it and it'll, uh, it'll settle down, you know. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and that's good to know.